0: And we will read together verses 14 through 18. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about Him and cried out, saying, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for He existed before me. For of His fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace... For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. Let's bow together as we open our time. Our Father, we are dependent upon Your Spirit to open our eyes and our hearts and our ears, that we may be able to see and hear and understand Your Word. These are things which are too marvelous for us, and as we approach some of these greater theological subjects we would say with Paul who is sufficient for these things we we feel so overwhelmed we feel so out of our element we feel that you have revealed to us more than these finite limited and fallen minds can understand we pray god that you would give to us an appreciation for your word and also for these great things these great truths may you be pleased to manifest yourself here in our midst in granting us understanding And in opening our eyes, that we may behold from your word wonderful things. Teach us, we ask, this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, would it not be great if it were Christmas time right about now? Every kid in the place is saying, yeah, and everybody else is saying, I'm not quite sure I'm ready for winter just yet. I mean that it would be great if it were Christmas time right now just simply because it would fit in so well with what we're going through in the Gospel of John and the content of what we've been studying these last few weeks and even today, and that is the Word of God, the eternal Word of God, Jesus the Christ who came in the flesh. And if it were Christmas time, we could be enjoying this series of Christmas messages, which is what I've been preaching. I missed it by about two and a half months, and I guess we could have spent a little bit more time in the first 13 verses, and it would have all worked out really well. But we've made our way through this, and we'll just have to see what Christmas time brings us when we get to Christmas in the Gospel of John course, the silver lining, if it were Christmas time right now, we'd be that much closer to spring and to summer, right? So there's a silver lining there, a little bit of a plus if it were Christmas. Last week, we only looked at a few words, and the word was made flesh. And we fleshed out for us, hey, that was actually an unintended pun right there. We sort of uh, fleshed out what that means and what it does not mean. What does it mean when we say that the second person of the Trinity became flesh? And it's important to understand what we mean and what we don't mean. What we don't mean by that is that he, exi- he did not exist prior to that, and so He came into existence in the womb of the Virgin. That's not true. What we do mean is that the Word, who is the eternal Word, the eternal Son, the second person of the Trinity, who uh, existed with God, who was God, who always existed in nature as God, in the form of God, that at a point in time He took upon Himself flesh, He became flesh, and He dwelt among us. And when He did that, and this is the important thing to remember, He did not change His divine nature into a human nature. There was no change that took place from a divine nature to a human nature. Nor did He exchange His divine nature and take a human nature. Nor did He combine a divine nature with a human nature so as to produce some third thing, some hybrid of the two, a half-divine, quasi-divine, quasi-human person. Rather, we mean that in the one person of Christ, there exists two natures. Do you remember the little equation that I gave you last week? One person, two natures. So that in Christ, He is both fully, completely perfect humanity, and He is at the same time fully, completely perfect deity. Two full, complete, perfect natures in the one person who is the Lord Jesus Christ. So that He is fully human and that He is also at the same time fully divine. And those two natures come into the one person and in coming together, they do not lose any of their qualities, nor are they meshed together, nor do they overlap, nor do they compromise, nor do they conflict. But they exist together in perfect harmony, in perfect perfection in the person of Christ. That was... Chapter 1, verse 14, the first couple of words. And I told you that our study of chapter 1, verse 14, was going to revolve around four words. Humanity, humility, glory, and grace. And we just covered the humanity last week, and so we pick it up now with the rest of verse 14, the humility of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Word was made flesh, and look at that next phrase, isn't it beautiful in verse 14? And dwelt among us. Now, if that phrase in itself does not make you step back and say, whoa, then something is wrong. It may be that you have not an adequate appreciation for the glories of heaven, which he left, or you do not adequately appreciate the cesspool of sin, which this is. The condescension from the glories of heaven to this cesspool of sin and death and depravity is incomprehensible. It may be that you do not understand what it is that he left and how glorious was his existence. He existed in the form of God, in the nature of God, and he had all of the attributes of God and all of the conveniences and the glories of God in heaven. He enjoyed the worship of angels. He had never known hot or cold, thirst or hunger, exhaustion, any of the weaknesses or frailties of humanity, He had never known what it was to feel a human emotion as a human. He had never experienced any of the things that you and I as human beings experience. And that's the author of Hebrews. That's the point that he makes. He was in all points tempted as we are. And he was touched by our infirmities. He had never known any of that. None of it. All he had known was the bliss, the glory, the sinless perfection of heaven. And then to come down here. To this rotten, filthy cesspool of rebellious and wicked sinners like you and me. Right? Surrounded by death. Surrounded by blasphemy. Surrounded by blasphemies and blasphemers and rebels and people who hated Him and hated His Father and hated His glory and rejected His kingdom, and wanted nothing to do with Him, and would not bow the knee, and would not submit to His Lordship, would not acknowledge His existence or who He was, totally rejected, totally hated, surrounded by filth and depravity and sin, and sinners and wickedness of every kind. A.W. Pink in his commentary on the book of John says, if He had condescended from heaven to earth to come down here and to reign as a king, that would be a stooping down which is almost beyond comprehension. If he had left the glory of heaven and the worship of angels to come here and reign over us, sinful, wicked, depraved, cesspool of sin and vile filth as human beings, if he had come down here as a king to reign, that would be stepping down, which is almost beyond comprehension. But what did he do instead? He came in the form of a babe, helpless, and he chose poverty instead. And he was born under the radar so that nobody noticed it, except a few people to whom God had revealed it. And he grew up in a quiet family out in Nazareth as a carpenter's son. That's condescension. That's stepping down to almost the lowest conceivable level. And John says he came and he dwelt here, lived here among us. The word dwelt, it's kind of an interesting Greek word. Skenao in the Greek. Skenao, it's kind of a, it, it, the, the, sorry, the verb form of the word means to pitch a tent and to live. To put up a tent and to dwell or to live in the tent. The noun form of that word is used in the New Testament in two ways. It's used, first of all, of this body of flesh and blood that you and I have. You remember Second Peter chapter 1 where Peter tells his readers, I'm reminding of you of these things, because the time of my laying aside this earthly tent is at hand. Peter was nearing the end of his life. He knew he was nearing the end of his life. And he said, it's about time for me to leave my earthly dwelling, this earthly tent in which I live, this temporary residence, which is this body which will rot away. That's how it's used. It's also used, the noun form in the New Testament, of the tabernacle which was in the wilderness, which we read about in Hebrews chapter 9. That tabernacle which was put up in the wilderness, that's the same word that John uses, or a form of the same word that John uses here, to pitch a tent. And I think that John's intentional allusion is to that tabernacle in the wilderness. And let me give you three indications from John chapter 1 that ought to show you that what John has in mind is the parallel between Jesus and the tabernacle in the wilderness. First of all, John says that He, the Word, was made flesh, and that is that God came and dwelt here among us. In the Old Testament, what was the tabernacle? The tabernacle was the dwelling of God among men. That is where God visibly manifested Himself to His people. That is where God dwelt and dealt with His people. That is where He was worshipped. And in the tabernacle, when God showed up, He showed up at the tabernacle, not out on a mountaintop, nowhere else, but that was the place that He chose to visibly manifest Himself, His glory. Not all of His glory, not His glory unveiled entirely, but a veiled and limited demonstration of His glory was in the tabernacle. So notice the parallel. He who was God came and tabernacled here among us. In the Old Testament, God came and lived or pit in a tent in a tabernacle in the wilderness. The second thing from the context that indicates that John has in mind the Old Testament tabernacle and the similarities is the reference to glory. What happened in the Old Testament when the tabernacle was finished and Moses finished it and they dedicated it to the Lord? Do you remember what happened? In Exodus chapter 40, it says the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of the meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And John says he came and he dwelt among us and we saw his glory. And in the Old Testament tabernacle, that's where God manifested his glory. And so here's the parallel. When God in the Old Testament came into the tabernacle, it was filled with glory. When God came to dwell among His people, we saw the glory. When God came in the person of Christ and dwelt among us in the flesh, we saw His glory. That's an affirmation of the deity of Christ there in John chapter 1, verse 14. And the third indication from the context, you'll notice the mention of the law later on in verse 17, I think it is. The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Grace was realized through Jesus Christ. That's a reference to the Old Testament tabernacle and the law where the law was kept. The broken tablets inside the the, uh, Ark of the Covenant, inside the Holy of Holies, right inside the tabernacle, behind the veil. And uh, John has in mind that temple or that tabernacle where the law was and the law was given. And John is comparing that which was in the Old Testament where the glory of God was in a limited sense when God came and dwelt among His people and Jesus Christ where the glory of God was in its fullest sense and where we saw His glory veiled as it was when God came to dwell among His people again in the person of Jesus Christ. When God comes, there is a visible manifestation of glory. And He came and He dwelt here for 33 years. Do you ever wonder why so long why 33 years? Not the number 33 particularly, but just why not a weekend or a week? If the purpose and plan of God was for the second person, the Son of God, to die as an atonement, to pay the price for sin, why did He come in the form of a babe and grow up and live as a child and then live as a teenager and live as a young adult and then live as an adult for all of those years? Why 33 full years? Why not And I mean no no irreverence by this whatsoever. Why not come on a Wednesday, die on a Friday, rise on a Saturday, and leave on a Monday? Why come to this cesspool and live for 33 years? Why not a much shorter period of time? You ever wonder that? Some of you are afraid I'm not going to give you the answer. The answer is actually in what I said last week. He did that in order that he could fully sympathize with us and feel all of our infirmities. listen, He knows our infirmities and He knows what it is to live as a child and have to submit to your parents even when they may do something that's not right. He knows what it is to live as a teenager and to deal with puberty and to go through all of the temptations and to go through all of the issues that teenagers have. He knows what it is to live as a young adult, to get a job, to keep a job, to work for a boss, to submit to authority. He was born under the law and He lived under the law and He kept the law perfectly in order that His righteous obedience to the law and His perfect life lived as an infant, as a child, as a teenager, as a young adult, and as an adult, could be credited to our account. This is what theologians call the active righteousness of Jesus Christ. That is that when you and I place our faith in Jesus Christ, it's not just our sin that is forgiven. It is more than that. We actually have credited to our account all of His law-keeping. And He has imputed to His account all of our law-breaking. So He kept the law perfectly on my behalf so that in the court of God, God might view me not as a law-breaker, but as a law-keeper. So that in God's courtroom, He sees me as having kept all of the righteous requirements of His law perfectly. Why? Because all of that obedience was credited to my account alongside of all of His righteousness both His passive righteousness and His active righteousness, and my sins were forgiven. So that all of my sins and my law-breaking are credited to Him, all of His righteousness and His perfect law-keeping, His perfect obedience is credited to my account. Listen, if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, God sees you in His courtroom as having never broken a single one of His laws. Isn't that amazing? You know why He lived 33 years? To demonstrate and to know what it is to live, to be born under the law, and to live under the law, and to keep the law perfectly. And He did it for you and for I. That's why 33 years. What humility that is. What humility. Four things that mark the Word made flesh. First, humanity. The Word was made flesh. Second, humility. He came and He dwelt here among us. And He lived here, born under the law, keeping the law perfectly. And then glory. John says, we beheld His glory. And that's, I think, another allusion, like I said, to the Old Testament tabernacle. We saw the glory of the Word made flesh. That is to say that in Jesus Christ, the disciples were able to behold the glory of God. Now, it was a veiled glory. It wasn't an unveiled glory or a limitless glory. But it was veiled in the sense that it was veiled in human flesh. As the hymn that we sing at Christmas says, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see." Hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. He was veiled in flesh. And even though veiled in the flesh, you would have been able to see the Godhead there. And they were able to see the glory of God. Now what is the glory of God? It's not one of God's attributes. The glory of God is actually the full manifestation of all of God's attributes. So we don't think of the glory of God as being one of His attributes in the sense that, okay, God is loving and He's just and He's kind. And He's good, and He's wise, and He's compassionate, and He's all-powerful, and omnipresent, and He's also glorious. No. The glory of God is what you see when you put all of those things together, all of His attributes, the fullness of His being, in one perfect being, that is, the Godhead. And it manifests itself as glory. So God's glory is the fullness of all that He is. Because He is all of those things, He is glorious. And that glory was manifested and present in the person of Jesus Christ, even though it was veiled in human flesh. And there were times, and you can think of one probably right off the top of your head, there were times when the curtain was pulled back, as it were, and people were allowed to see that glory more than at other times. For instance, on the Mount of Transfiguration, Matthew chapter 17. Peter, James, and John up on the mountain with Jesus. And Matthew says he was transfigured before them. And his clothes were turned white and he began to glow. And what Peter, James, and John were allowed to see is basically the veil of his flesh or the veil of his humanity pulled back and they got a glimpse, still limited as it were, because no man could see God and live. But they got a glimpse of that glory. What it was that his humanity hid from our eyes, from our physical eyes. At that point they were able to see his glory. That's why Peter in Second Peter chapter 1 says, we did not follow cleverly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty, of His glory. When we heard the voice from glory say, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Peter and John were able to stand there on the mountain and see a preview of His glory. A glimpse of that glory where the humanity was pulled back and they beheld and saw the glory of God as at no other time. There were also times when you could see His glory and it was much more veiled. For instance, the disciples would have been able to see the glory of God in Christ, in all of His character, in His perfection, in His impeccability, in His sinlessness, as He kept the law fully in word, thought, and in deed, never sinning so that at the end of His life, nobody could bring a charge against Him as a lawbreaker. They had to hire false witnesses to lie and to blaspheme against Him because He was impeccable and they would have seen the perfection of that person of Christ and the perfection of God in Jesus Christ, though veiled in human flesh. They would have seen His glory when He walked on water, when He healed the multitudes, when He raised people from the dead, when He fed the the multitudes with fish and loaves, when He calmed the sea, they would have seen His glory. When He forgave sins and when He caused the lame to walk and the blind to see, they would have saw His glory. They saw His glory manifested when He taught So that when he was all done, the crowds would say, this guy teaches like no other man. He teaches as one with authority. He teaches like somebody who knows the law inside and out. And he is somehow able to reveal our hearts and to know our hearts and to know our thoughts. It's almost like he knows us. That's why John could say he didn't need any man to testify about what was in man. He could walk up to somebody and know what they were thinking. He'd be standing in a crowd and know what somebody was thinking. They saw that glory of Christ revealed. And John says we beheld it. And the word behold there or the word saw doesn't mean simply to glance at with the eye. It speaks of seeing something with the bodily, physically eye, uh, physical eye. But it means more than just glancing and observing something. Like you and I might stare off and into something or gawk at something and we're seeing it, we're beholding it in that sense. But this word means something far different. This word means to contemplate, to ruminate, To consider, to evaluate, to study it, to scrutinize it with the mind and with the eye. Through the eye, with the mind. John is saying we saw and beheld and scrutinized and studied that glory so that we came to an understanding of who He was. Because we saw more than just the miracles. We contemplated all that we saw. And John says, I am here to tell you, it was none other than the glory of God manifested in the flesh. That is marvelous, is it not? We beheld His glory, and it was a glory that was fitted for and like what you would expect from the only begotten of the Father full of grace and truth. That's what that next phrase means. It's the glory that you would expect of the One who is the only begotten from the Father. Now that word begotten kind of causes us some consternation, does it not? And I've had um, when we do... In fact, I think it was this year during Week of Awana when we did an Ask the Pastor night with the TNT, the older kids in the Iwana clubs, one of the kids said, if Jesus always existed, why does it call Him the only begotten Son? That's a good question, isn't it? What does the word begotten mean? And what does that mean? mean, Here, I've been telling you since we started the book of John that Jesus has always existed, and He always existed without beginning, and yet, here He is called the begotten of the Father. I think it's a At best, it is an unfortunate translation of the Greek word that's there. And I actually would lobby and lobby hard to get it removed from every English Bible because whatever it meant 500 years ago, it doesn't mean that today. The word begotten in the English language communicates necessarily something that had a beginning. You read the book of Matthew, and -and so-and-so begat, and he begat, and -and so-and-so was begotten by him. And it always means procreation or having a beginning or bringing something forth or bringing something into being to generate it or to create it or to produce it. That's what the English word means. But that's not what the Greek word means. The Greek word doesn't speak of something's origin. It it describes something's uniqueness. Monogonese is the Greek word. Monogonese. And it means only or unique, only son or unique son. And the word is not used to describe something's beginning, to say that something had a beginning, It is used to describe something's status or someone's status as being only or unique. Let me show you how it's used in the rest of the New Testament. In the Gospel of Luke, Luke writes, Now as he, that is Jesus, approached the city, a dead man was being carried out, the only son, Manogres, the only son of his mother. And she was a widow, and a sizable crowd from the city was with her. Luke chapter 8, verse 42, Jairus came to Jesus, for he had an only daughter. Monoganes, an only begotten one, a unique one. About 12 years old and she was dying, Luke chapter 9, verse 38, and a man from the crowd shouted, saying, Teacher, I beg you, look at my son, for he is my monoganes, my only boy. Unique, only, I only have one. And he's unique. And probably the most telling use of monoganes in the whole New Testament is Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17, where it says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son, monogenes. Now let me ask you a question. Was Isaac Abraham's only son? He wasn't, was he? Why then does the author of Hebrews say that he is the monogenes, only begotten son? Because what is being stressed is that Isaac was a unique son. He was not like Ishmael. Ishmael was not the son of promise. He was not the son of covenant. Born before Isaac, but he was not the promised one. Isaac was Abraham's only unique son. Not the only son that he had. He had other sons and other other daughters and other children. But Isaac was unique. He was different than Ishmael. Unique. That's the idea of monogamous. So it should read that Jesus, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld His glory. Glory that we would expect from the only unique Son of God. Not generated, not procreated, not brought into existence, not created, not anything to have to do with the beginning, but the unique Son of God. You'll notice that the word is used again in verse 18. He is the only begotten God, that is the unique God. And it's most common reference and that we hear, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that He gave His only and unique Son. Now why would John use the word begotten to describe the Son, or monogenes at this point to describe the Son? It is for this reason, because in chapter 1, verse 12, He said, For as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name. So are we all sons of God in the sense that Jesus is the Son of God? No, that's John's point. Jesus is the glorious Son of God, monoganes, only, unique in every way. He stands in a relationship to the Father that you and I don't enjoy. You and I will never have that position or that relationship. He is the only Son, the eternal Son, in a unique way that you and I are not privileged to enjoy. But we are sons, yes, but not like the monogonese, the unique Son of God, who is Son from eternity past. He is the Son of God. The only begotten of the Father, that's the glory, full of grace and truth. So we've looked at humanity and humility and glory, and now grace, and I guess we could add to this list truth since we're on our way through that, grace and truth. Grace is a key Christian idea or theme It is uh, something that you find all the way through the New Testament. Interestingly enough, and, and I say this not because you can build any doctrine on this, but after these few verses here in John, after verse 18 of John, John never mentions the word grace again. Even though for the rest of the gospel he portrays what grace looks like as it walks among us. Isn't that interesting? Never using the word, yet you can see Jesus in his encounter with Nicodemus and the woman at the well and in his teaching and in his in His counseling and in His miracles and in all of His works. It is grace upon grace. And that's John's point of that fullness of grace you and I have all received. He is full. He has not in partial measure or in limited measure, but He is full of grace and truth. One of the themes of the book of Colossians is the the fullness of God in Christ. That Christ has for us the fullness of everything we could need. Find a need. Come up with any need that you have. The fulfillment of that and the satisfaction of that need is in Christ in its fullest measure. There is nowhere to look anywhere else for anything else because in Christ we have all of the fullness of grace and all of the fullness of truth. He is grace upon grace and from His fullness that is what we receive. And truth. Truth is a key Christian theme. It's mentioned another 25 times in the Gospel of John. And when John talks about truth, and we'll have ample opportunity to flesh out what truth is, in the Gospel of John. But when John talks about truth, he doesn't mean truth as opposed to falsehood. What's true against what's false. He is speaking there of the nature of God, the reality of all that exists, everything God is, everything God has, everything God offers, everything that characterizes the one who is truth in human flesh. That is why Jesus could say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You want to know truth? It's in Jesus Christ. You'll find it nowhere else. Anything that is true is summed up and contained in Him. And all other truth flows from that one being, the person of Jesus Christ. Because He is grace in the flesh and He is truth incarnate. Now one last observation and with this we close. In that list of four or five, if you include truth, humanity, humility, glory, grace, and truth. In that list of five things which really characterize and sum up the Word made flesh that is Christ. There are two qualities that do not seem to go together. Humility and glory. Those do not, to me, seem to go together in the same individual well. And I think it is because you and I are not familiar with any example that we can put our finger on in the human realm where an individual achieves a level or stature of glory where he at the same time is the essence of the virtue of humility. We just had this last week, a collection of all of the world's finest idiots in one place. All of the world's greatest wisdom and greatest minds and greatest intellects and problem solvers and world leaders. All of these men who have achieved human glory and earthly glory almost to an unlimited measure. Was there a modicum of humility among any of them? Anywhere in that building? Not a bit of it. Not any. You and I are are so not used to seeing glory and humility go together that when we describe the Word made flesh, we are speaking of this glorious being, the glorious Son of God, full of all the attributes of God. And yet He is the essence of humility because this same author who tells us here that the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, that that eternal Coexistent, co equal being with God the Father, God the Son, took upon himself human flesh, and he stooped down and he washed the dirty feet of those disciples. That is glory and humility in one being. And you know the paradox for us is that the path to glory really goes through humility. It was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross and despised the shame. That's the path to glory. And in the person of Christ, we see infinite glory and infinite humility. That has to boggle our minds, does it not? That is your God. From eternity past, that is your God. And we have to marvel at that. Where else do you see that? Humility, glory, grace, and truth, all in one person. All in humanity, that is the Word made flesh. Let's bow together. Our Father, we do thank you for the example of humility that you have given us in Christ. We thank you that our God is, that you as our God are holy, that you are righteous, that you are true altogether. We thank you that you have come to dwell here in human flesh, and that your Son took upon him that flesh and was made in the likeness of sinful flesh in order to accomplish our redemption and our salvation. What a blessing it is, O God, to be the redeemed and to fully realize all the implications of that atonement and that humility. And may we, by your grace and in your power, model that humility and that lowliness of mind which considered the interest of others ahead of its own, and stoop to serve one another and to love one another, not for glory's sake, but for the gospel's sake. May you be pleased to sanctify us to that end, we ask in Jesus' name. For his sake. Amen.